On Thursday, I posted a complaint on social media that I was late in preparing my sermon. When I'm preaching, I try really hard to be ready before my husband John comes home from San Francisco because I like to save my weekends for him. But this just wasn't that kind of week. Everything seemed to take more time than I had planned. So I really didn't know when I was going to have the kind of time for prayer and study that makes for a good sermon. But thank goodness, our bishop weighed into my Facebook feed to offer some advice. <laughs> tell them, he said, tell them, Jesus loves you. Go be like Jesus. Love people. And then you're done. I had you worried for a moment there, didn't I? <laughs> Let the bishop know. <laughs> but you know that physical act of coming down from the mountain, in Jesus' case, plays no small role in the gospel passage we just heard. This is Luke's version of the Beatitudes, paralleling Matthew's better-known account of the Sermon on the Mount. But instead, Luke has Jesus delivering it on a plane, on the level ground, you might say, where um, the mountain and hill have been made low for the way of the Lord. Luke adds even more emphasis to this act of coming down, this leveling of Jesus and his congregation by calling attention to the direction of Jesus' gaze. The gospel tells us that he looked up at his disciples. Now, I'm not sure why he had to turn his eyes upward. Perhaps he'd been kneeling in response to the great multitudes who had come to him for healing. But what we do know for sure is that in Luke's version, Jesus wasn't looking down on anyone. So here, eye to eye with all of you, I want to ask a few questions. How many of you have ever trusted in people? See a show of hands, come on. How many of you have ever trusted in God? All right, so cursed, blessed, which one are you? How many of you are or have been hungry or poor or sorrowful? Blessed are you. How many of you have ever been rich or full or happy or admired by people? Mm-mm-mm, woe to you. <laughs> and to those of you who raised your hands more than once, those of you who find yourself in categories of both blessing and woe, I'd like you to take a moment, I really mean this, and see if you can draw a sort of mental border between those sides of yourself. Could you build a wall between them? 
Could you say that one part of yourself is in the community of the blessed and one part of yourself outside of it? What about the person sitting next to you? Is theirs the kingdom of God or have they been excluded? Watch out because that is a trick question. The moment any one of us moves to exclude another, Jesus is right there reminding us that the excluded are the blessed ones. Wouldn't you like to know who's included? Wouldn't you like to be among the included? The Bible is full of those kind of social categories that our human minds like. It simplifies the cognitive load to be able to identify who are the blessed and the cursed, the male, the female, the Jew, the Gentile, the clean, and the unclean. And lest we think that was then and this is now, take a moment to consider the social categories that make the world clear to you. Red and blue, black and white, immigrant and citizen, Episcopalian and Southern Baptist. These categories are useful shorthand, no, a, a tool for codifying the complexity of the world, as cognitive scientists tell us. The problem is when these categories harden into biases so entrenched that we may no longer even be aware of them. The rich enjoy God's blessing, the reviled do not. That's, that's just the way it is, right? Mexicans are bad hombres. Evangelical Christians are right-wing fanatics. Choose your favorite category and stick with it. Pretty soon it will define your reality. Enter then Jesus the teacher, who not only lifted up those entrenched social categories into the light of day, he also reversed the biases attached to them. And Luke's gospel, most especially, showcases God's preferential option for the poor, beginning with the Magnificat of Mary and continuing with Jesus' first public teaching at the synagogue in Nazareth. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty, said Jesus' mother. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news for the poor, said Jesus. Little wonder that we would hear him teaching today that the reviled are the blessed and the revered and the rich are the ones who need to be healed of their selfishness. Thank goodness then that the teacher was also a healer. Power came out of him and he healed all of them, the text says, all of them, all of those who had come to hear him, including the disciples to whom the Beatitudes and woes seem to have been addressed. Blessed are you who are hungry, woe to you who are full. Who among that crowd was hungry and who was full? The disciples themselves were surely, were surely both because we know that they were feasting and fasting along the way with Jesus, laughing and mourning, sometimes at the same time, as are we. I wonder if that's one way to put Jeremiah's insistence that the heart is perverse. Who can understand it into some context? By the standards of the Beatitudes, 
I don't fare so very well. I am not poor or hungry. I like it when people speak well of me. I say that I trust God, and yet I still try to hide my woeful side from God. But there's good news to be heard in the prophet's very next line. The Lord tests the mind and searches the heart. What I'd rather not know about myself, God already knows about me and will reveal it to me and heal it for me if I'm brave enough to face my own truth. To be searched by God is not a search and destroy mission. It is a search and restore mission. When Jesus lifted up his eyes upon the disciples, he did so as God among us, not as God above us. Blessed are you. Woe to you, righteous are you, wicked are you, he said to his followers. Eye to eye among his friends, he told the truth that healed them. All of them, as the gospel says. And this is the truth that heals us still. God sees the whole of us. God sees what we are. God sees what we are not. God sees what we would prefer to remain hidden. God sees what we long to be. And to be fully seen by God, to be searched and known by God, is the freedom to be transformed by God. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. And so our cantor sings at the beginning of every Sunday Eucharist, inviting us to open our hearts to the God who knows all our desires. Whatever mixture of woe and blessing is yours today is already known to God. Know yourself then so that you may choose the way of blessing. That's what Christ asked of his followers then and of us now. Our weekly ritual at this table is an enacted reminder of God's perfect love for us, a love unbounded by our categories, unbounded by our woefulness, unbounded even by death. And when we know God's perfect love, when we taste it here at this table, we ourselves are freed to love perfectly. If you didn't get all that, let me give you the Spark Notes version. Jesus loves you. Go be like Jesus. Love people. All people. The whole blessed, cursed, righteous, wicked, woeful lot that we are. Amen.